Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm so excited, Sid, because it's one of my favorite times of the year. Is it? Well, summer. Summer? Summer. And a new season means it doesn't always work out this way, but uh, we're going to answer some of your medical questions. And by we, you I mean, mean me. you, <laughs> because the alternative would be wild. Oh, Justin, sometimes you take a stab at them and see what happens. Uh, that's true. I Yeah, just like uh, many of our beloved mass murderers, I take a stab <laughs> at them and see what happens. Should, should I offer you the opportunity to answer more of these questions moving forward? You should, should let I, me take a swing. Should I be like, Justin, why don't you feel this <laughs> a one? Warm up. A warm why don't up you hit. do this one and see how you do? Uh, okay, Sid, I am so excited. Let me pull up our questions because I didn't have them pulled up. I do. I have them, uh, and I titled it Weird Medical Questions with the Date, which is what I always I do, think... and I capitalize both the M and the E Yeah. in medical, and it's really bothering. I'm just going to have to fix that. Just fix it real quick. Just, I'm we just we, fix we it. can take that go. off. Okay. Yeah, we can it's do fine that. Now. Is it better it's now? Fine now? Okay, good. It's fine now. <laughs> Hi. Why do doctors always ask me when my last period was? I mean, I'm coming to the urgent care for flu slash cold symptoms that won't go away as a lesbian that practices safe sexual habits. It would be preposterous for me to conceive, though not impossible, I guess. I don't know. I feel like it's an invasion of my privacy for my doctor to ask me the day of my last period. Am I foolish to be nervous? I usually don't remember the exact day, so I just guess. Tee. That uh, says, much love, Meg the Oki. Uh, I, so I like this question. I actually, the first two questions are both from the same listener, and I appreciated this scenario, which we'll, we'll see. But so... I was thinking about this because I had an encounter today where I asked a patient when their last period was. But in that specific instance, the reason I was asking is because the patient was concerned about a possible pregnancy. Okay. And so part of the whole process of like, first of all, you know, doing a pregnancy test is pretty, I mean, it's no risk. Like, mm -hmm. you know pee and we dip the stick in it. Whatever. As far as things y'all do, it's pretty, pretty banal. Yeah. Yeah. But so like I was going to do the test, but like I also like counseling before and after, like what is the, what are we looking at right now? And so, and then of course, if a test is positive, you, you want to know date of last menstrual period because that helps us determine how far along you are and Makes sense. blah, blah, blah. So that's all important. Um, and I started thinking like, how often do I ask that question? I generally don't unless it is directly relevant to the complaint. Mm-hmm. Um, or like if I'm trying, if I'm going to consider prescribing a medication 
that could be dangerous Mm -hmm. for someone of childbearing age, Mm -hmm. I might say, is there a possibility you could be pregnant? Mm -hmm. And then if the person was unsure, I would probably just offer a test. So I don't know in this situation, it's actually hard for me to generate a good answer for you because I don't, I do not ask my patients who present with cold and flu symptoms when their last menstrual period was. Okay. So I found that kind of interesting that it would be on a standard intake form. It certainly would be at like an OBGYN's office. It absolutely is. And sometimes as part of like an entire, if I'm doing like your first appointment, you're someone who has periods, you've come to see me for the first time to establish care as your family doctor, I might ask you then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily malicious or insidious that someone would ask. I wouldn't assume that, but I also don't don't entirely understand why it would ever be relevant on just like a random walk-in clinic visit. Um, that being said, I thought the second part of the question was interesting to think about. Would it make you nervous to share that information? And I think that that's a really valid fear, mm-hmm. whether or not I think that in reality anyone would do anything with that information. I mean, to be honest, it was recorded, I would think, this is my guess. I'm not the provider, but I would guess. It was recorded in the EMR, and that was that. And mm-hmm. it nothing will be done with that piece of information. It was it was a box that was checked, a date that was filled in, and that was that. Um, but I can certainly understand why you would be concerned about that. And certainly in the case where someone would find out they were pregnant in a medical setting, I can understand the fear surrounding other people knowing that about your body. Um depending on what state you live in or, I mean, assuming you live in the United States. But just to kind of calm your fears, on the doctor end, my guess is that for the most part, these are just like standard intake forms Mm -hmm. that have a probably pretty unnecessary question. They're like a broad swath. And so if it was something in any way related to the possibility that you could be pregnant or something like that, having that date on the paperwork would be useful and they're not going to have to come back to your room to ask you. Mm. So I think it's a convenience thing. Okay. Um, but I can understand your fear. I I doubt that it has anything to do with anything other than paperwork. Uh, let's see. Our next question here. I am sick again. Freshly 26 and gracelessly yanked off my parents' insurance. I'm trying to navigate a medical system that is, let's face it, FUBAR. The doctor seeing me forgot to knock, so I was lying face down to allow the mucus to flow freely. When he asked in a gruff voice, this is Meg, it was 2 p.m., therefore I was sympathetic when he was less enthusiastic about all the questions I had for him. I get it. Everyone needs a nap at two. But when he shrugged after I asked if my sinus infection was contagious, I felt pretty let down by a service I'm paying a lot of my own money for. But thank goodness I do know someone willing to answer a silly medical question. My question for you is, can I take over-the-counter allergy relief along with my prescribed amoxicillin and prednisone, or will that cancel each other out? I appreciated that Meg was probably stuck in an urgent care situation for a long time and took the time to write us two emails during this. Yes. <laughs> during this visit. Um, I, I is, it two, is it two separate visits? Because Meg does say, I'm sick again. They're written on the same day. Okay, all right. <laughs> Unless they were two separate visits on the same day. That's a rough day, Meg. That's a rough day, Meg. Um I thought that this was important, not just for the specific, this is a very specific situation that you encountered. And I will I will urge you, I cannot give you personal medical advice. I don't know your history. I don't know 
you know, your allergies or what other meds you might be on or whatever. And so to to be able to like broad strokes answer, yes, you can take a medicine. You can't do that from a podcast. That would be irresponsible and I can't give you good advice. Right. Um, generally- We said that, we said that in the disclaimer. Right. Generally speaking, uh, a lot of people will go see a doctor because they have some sort of cold flu type upper respiratory syndrome. They might be prescribed something like antibiotics and steroids and- the vast majority of the time, over-the-counter cold and flu meds or allergy meds are not going to interfere with those things. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the time, they're all okay to take together. I cannot speak to your specific situation, Meg, because I don't. I'm not your doc, but I will say this is why it is really important that you be able to advocate for yourself. And I understand why this was an uncomfortable situation. Mm-hmm. And certainly, the onus is on us as the provider to make you feel comfortable asking questions, even silly questions. Because no question is silly if you don't know the answer. That's true. It's you need quite, to know. Yeah, you don't know. Especially about your own health care. Um, and so no matter how your provider is acting, you have a right to ask those questions. And, you know, it's hard because we do have this consumer model of medicine yes. in the U.S. And I think that that plays out in two different ways. I think there are some people who feel like because they're paying, they are entitled to demand whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who feel like, and I think I fall into this category, I'm someone who feels like if I'm paying for something, if I'm a customer, I want to be the best customer possible. Right. And not demand anything. Right. I feel like for me, I, I think like the way you act in a restaurant is probably pretty predictive of this. If you're constantly complaining and sending everything back you're probably going to make sure that doctor answers every question you want to know before yep. they leave the room because you get it. You paid for this. They're selling you healthcare as a product. Um, if you're someone who is like me and who will eat raw chicken before you'll send it anything back, <laughs> then you're going to want to get out of that room with asking, without asking any questions because you're going to be really sensitive to the way the provider's feeling. And honestly, that's why medica- medicine shouldn't be for profit. Hey. Because the entire system shouldn't be predicated on how much you're paying for something. It should be you go in with a problem your concerns are addressed, you are diagnosed and treated appropriately, and you leave feeling better than when you arrived. Because of the medicine. Or because of whatever, you know, assessment and opinion you got. Sometimes you don't need medicine. Um, so I would just encourage you, don't be afraid to ask these questions. Don't be afraid to speak up for yourself. Even if it's, if your provider's being grumpy, that's their problem. Yeah, that's not You don't you. have to suffer for that. All right. Uh, let's see. Today at work, a coworker mentioned to me that he didn't believe that sun exposure causes skin cancer. His evidence for this claim was that humans have been farming and spending long amounts of time in the sun for thousands of years, and it would follow that ancient humans did not know about sunscreen and therefore should have been dying of skin cancer. He then says ancient humans weren't dying in droves from skin cancer, therefore the sun does not cause skin cancer. Obviously, he is bonkers for thinking this, but I wonder if you could explain just exactly why he is wrong. All I could say is that there's an uh, actually an entire body of evidence proving that sun causes cancer, but I didn't have any specifics to debate him with. Thanks, Natalie. You know, Natalie, it's tough when you are talking about something that is so well known, has been so well studied and researched and is accepted not as like a theory, but as, but as a truth, <clears throat> it can be hard to debate. I, I feel like this is almost like debating somebody who believes the earth is flat. Right, because it's not. And it's, that's that makes it tough, right? It's not. It's not. The earth I mean, isn't flat. That's it's not. You no. Sh- it's not really a debate. It's just like it's not. <laughs> no. And I mean, and these are bad like on some level it's a bad faith argument. Right. And and it's not like what 
I don't know, when the preponderance of evidence in all the world is on your side and someone chooses not to believe it, that's yeah. I don't know that you can win. So, yeah. so let me first say that it may not be worth debating with this person. But you're obviously concerned for their safety as well because sure. this, this individual needs to know that, yes, sun exposure is a risk factor for developing skin cancer. Of course it is. We know that. We know that uh, damage to our DNA from any source— there are a number of things that can be cancer-causing that, right. that are carcinogens. And if they damage your DNA and cause cells to grow irregularly, that can lead to cancer. Um, the fact that everyone in the ancient world didn't die of skin cancer um, doesn't mean anything because everyone today doesn't wear sunscreen appropriately, right? Like not everyone. Right. And not everyone develops skin cancer. A lot of that is just the genetic luck you got, right? right? It's the same. It's the same argument somebody makes who is still smoking at ninety years old and says, "See, smoking See, doesn't cause fine, lung cancer. Hey, I'm fine." It. It's called a risk factor, not a weapon from God to kill you with sunlight, <laughs> right? People in the risk ancient factor. world died of skin cancer. They did. Not all of them, because we're here. Not all of them died of anything, because we're still here. We continue to exist. Humans are pretty good at continuing to exist. <laughs> uh, we just keep making more of us. Um, but definitely people did die of skin cancer, and sun exposure definitely is a risk factor for that. And it is super important. If nothing else, I wanted to address this question because if nothing else, please remember that it is important to wear your sunscreen. It is important to limit the direct exposure of your skin to the sun's radiation. Mm -hmm. um, just like any other potentially cancer-causing substance on earth the sun has good good things for you right your mm -hmm. vitamin d mm -hmm. but also you don't need too much of it i will also say this as long as we're doing a little uh theorizing um what you can demonstrably prove is that the sun causes sun burns and it stands to reason that we as a species would want to ameliorate sunburns as much as possible right so even before the advent of sunscreen we were likely taking steps to limit our sun exposure to prevent us from getting sunburns because they're very unpleasant. Namely clothes. We started yeah. wearing clothes. Yeah. Even in hot places. Yes. Yeah. And not just to cover our dinglings. Yes. We, I mean, there, there is a lot of evolutionary evidence that humans figured out before we knew the word cancer that too much sun exposure could be harmful. I was listening to an older episode where you mentioned a doctor who would stitch his initials into people in Morse code when he when he would have finished surgery. Not cool. I'm sorry. I laughed. It brought to mind something that happened to a friend who was seeing a gynecologist for a bit that she liked. Upon Googling his name, she found that he had some legal action against him because he had branded patients' uteruses with his initials during surgery. I was horrified by this, but upon Googling, I found many people defending this practice. What? Is this common? Do you have any personal opinions on the practice? Also, is there a historical reason why naproxen is so much less popular than ibuprofen? I grew up in a Aleve family. It seems like everyone was taking Tylenol or Advil. For the number of products in the stores reflects this too. This is probably observation bias, but it had me thinking. Okay, so first of all, I, I was trying to think of any sort of rationale for defending someone branding their initials into a first of all you shouldn't be branding uteruses yeah just that's as a not rule. part of the this isn't hey dude i have been um a, an assistant on c-sections throughout my medical training you don't brand the uterus 
that's not part of what we do. There is, so the, the only thing that we use that's even similar to that in a surgical procedure, there is cautery, which is like burning. Burning the wound to seal it, right? Yeah, or like a blood vessel that's bleeding, right? Something mm-hmm. to stop bleeding. Right. That's usually what electric cautery is used for. Not for branding. If you're writing with it, like, I can't, having been in ORs, and I would think my colleagues who are in ORs would echo this, I cannot imagine the horror in the room if you started writing on an organ. It start. It, I'm, I'm sure. That, and certainly, did you make the brand? Like, did this surgeon make, have the brand privately made and then brought with him and sterilized to the OR? I'm assuming it's a man. That's probably unfair, but maybe it isn't. I mean, and it could be, okay, I don't want to say, that, I don't want to say, I, I, I don't know the specific scenario, but... It seems so wild to me that it, it almost it makes you wonder if it's like a, a urban myth or it, smear it campaign. It feels or like an like urban that. legend to like, me. Yes, because the, like you're saying, who in the OR is going to be like he's doing it again? All this old dog. He's always branding you dry with his name. It's wild. It it, it it's so. But wildly, wild things do happen. I'm not saying. Well, and if there was if if there. <laughs> If there really was a gynecologist who did this, I would certainly hope that they lost their license. I would certainly hope that they're no longer practicing medicine. I would think you would have more than a malpractice case against them. It's hard for me to fathom. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but why is that not a criminal action? That has nothing to do with surgery. This isn't like outside the standard of care. This is just intentional harm. I don't know. Anyway, I would never, ever defend that. And yeah, I can't yeah. imagine a medical professional who would, who I would take seriously. Right. Um, obviously, there are bad people in every profession. Um, sure. And then in terms of naproxen and ibuprofen, I don't know. You know, that's really true. Most people I know either take ibuprofen or Tylenol. I feel like that naproxen is more often known by the brand name Aleve, and people don't know the two are the same, whereas ibuprofen, the generic name, is much more widely known. <laughs> Bless you. I would say this is a marketing issue. I would yeah. say that that's why. They both can work fine. I feel like also Aleve, when it came out, like I feel like it was newer. Like I feel like mm-hmm. I remember Aleve. And I feel like the pictures were always somebody grabbing their back. Like, ah, I think I thought it was just for backs. I do think ibuprofen has done a better job of of like marketing itself as an all-purpose anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Um Tylenol grabbed that space as a fever reducer. People always think of Tylenol for a fever reducer, even though like ibuprofen could as well or leave. Um, I think naproxen just didn't grab that market share. I think it's marketing. That would be my guess. Yeah, probably. Hypothetically speaking, if I were on my way to work and accidentally got sucked off into a time portal and emerged 1,000 years in the past, would I be a danger to any old-timey people I met? To the best of my knowledge, I don't currently have any contagious diseases. I have all the vaccines a 40-year-old American can be expected to have. Uh, I had not chickenpox vaccine because that was admitted after I'd already had it, not smallpox because they stopped giving that out once it was eradicated. Alternatively, because things like the English sweat were never solved and I don't have the smallpox vaccine, would I be in danger from old-timey people? That's from Nick. So, Nick, um, I don't necessarily think in terms of infectious disease— uh, you'd necessarily be at higher or like, I don't, I don't know the risk in terms of that. Like you're vaccinated against stuff that people a thousand years ago would not have been vaccinated against. Right. So you got a leg up on them. You don't pose a threat to them though. And in some ways you pose less of a threat, right? Cause you're not going to carry anything to them either. Um, and I can't think of anything that was around back then that isn't, you know, that we would like, 
I mean, the only thing I can think, okay, so the big things that would have gotten you back then, smallpox is one of them. So you're not vaccinated. So you're at the same risk of everybody else, right? Um, Leprosy was an issue at this point. Typhoid, uh, which you probably haven't been vaccinated for maybe, but but maybe not. Uh, Flu, if you've been vaccinated for flu, but it depends on what was circulating in 1032 or 1023. Flu, I don't know. It was the yeah. old weird flu. Um, now you've been, you've, you've got your diphtheria vaccine probably. Um, malaria, you might be at risk for depending on where you are. A dysentery. So here's what I would say. While in terms of like immunity and stuff, you're better prepared. And I don't think you pose a greater risk to anyone. What I would worry about is just like the problems that everyone else faces at the time. Like, if you get dysentery or cholera or whatever, we didn't have IV fluids yet. So that's going to be bad. We don't have antibiotics. So for a lot of these things I mentioned, you know, we don't have anti-malarials. Like, we don't, we can't treat you. So I think you're just sort of at the same risk as everybody else, which is you're you're at greater risk from these things because we don't have a lot of the modern medical supports. You just got to get back, Nick. You just got to get back, Nick. Why are you, What? how did you get stuck in 1023? (sighs) These wormholes. Uh, uh, Justin. Yeah. We need to take a break. No. We have to go to the billing department. Absolutely not. It's time. Okay. You win. <laughs> Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going to. Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool. Think of it as the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? 
from 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 a, a box pre-prepared? All I got at two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Oh my gosh. Hi, it's me, Dave Holmes, host of the pop culture game show, Troubled Waters. On Troubled Waters, we play a whole host of games, like one where I describe a show using Limerick, and our guests have to figure out what it is. Let's do one right now. What show am I talking about? This podcast has game after game, and brilliant guests who come play them. The host is named Dave. It could be your fave, so try it. Life won't be the same. Uh, Big Business, starring Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. Close, but no. Oh, Is it Troubled Waters, the pop culture quiz show with all your favorite comedians? Yes! Troubled Waters is the answer. To this question and all of my life's problems. Now, legally, we actually can't guarantee that. But you can find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Jay Keith, do you know what I love more than the trivia, comedy, and celebrity guests on our podcast, Go Fact Yourself? No, what, Helen? Sharing all of those things with an actual audience. A live audience. Woohoo! Well, lucky for you listeners, Go Fact Yourself has brand new episodes featuring live audiences cheering on guests every month. And we still have all of our Zoom episodes with contestants and experts from around the world. We can truly have it all. Yay! You can hear it all twice a month, every month, on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Yeah, no excuses. So if you're not listening, you can go fact yourself. Over the years, I've occasionally heard people refer to the meat sweats. Like, they eat a bunch of meat and start sweating a lot. Is this a real thing? If so, what causes it? Thanks for vibing and keeping it tight. Alex from the Twin Cities. And obviously, this is a confirmed yes. The meat sweats are real. Anybody who has experienced them knows that they are no laughing matter. We don't have studies to back that up. I have a study. It's called Ponderosa. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of people who will anecdotally insist that meat sweats are real. Um, a lot of doctors. There are. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure there are doctors who will say that. I'm sure there are dietitians who will say that. I will just say that, like, from what I could find in terms of research, like studies, there wasn't necessarily a higher report of sweating after uh, a meat. Filled meal related incident than there is after any other sort of large meal. Like sweating didn't necessarily increase. The, the theory behind this is that when you eat protein, like a high protein meal, mm-hmm. that your body digesting the protein, it will actually increase in temperature from the protein just a teeny bit. Your body is like yes processing. Yeah, to digest the protein, your body increases in temperature just a teeny bit. But it's such a small increase in body temperature, it would not necessarily produce sweating. So that's the thought behind it. It doesn't really pan out. And we don't have a study that says conclusively people who eat a lot of meat sweat more. So I don't, I I don't, I think it's probably that you notice it, right? 
Right. You eat a big meal. And I, I don't know. It depends on where you live, too. In the U.S., I feel like we have this sort of sense for a lot of people of a big meal involves a big piece of meat. Yes, because that's what makes it a meal is the meat part. So are you just noticing that, like, you just ate a big steak, but also a bunch of other stuff, and you got sweaty after you ate this big, giant meal? Yeah, probably. Maybe. I mean, I've been there. It's rough. But the, as far as I could find, there isn't there isn't conclusive proof that the meat sweats actually exist. Where is the funding for this research <laughs> on meat sweats? It's not going to change anything, though, No, right? it's not important. Hello, I just listened to the episode on xylazine. I'm a librarian in a public library, and we got Narcan training a few years ago. We were taught to never do mouth-to-mouth since we don't know for sure what they might have taken and if it could be transferred from us to them. Is this a state-to-state thing? I'm in PA and an old guy line or something you have to make a risk assessment about in the moment. Thanks a bunch. You're the best, Sydney. That's from your friendly neighborhood librarian in Pittsburgh, PA. Um, so I, I don't know if it's necessarily a state-to-state thing as much as what I'm guessing is that if you were trained on behalf of, like, your employer – you know, there's some liability right. coming into play there. Right. I was never like, if I am in a situation where I need to give mouth to mouth and I don't have some sort of mask or barrier device in which to use during that process, I am going to give them mouth to mouth. But I'm also we, a physician. We get it. Sid. No, oh I'm my a gosh, physician. You're the and best. Yes, yeah, no. so give mouth to mouth to anybody. We you're, get it. And and I would not your risk of of absorbing or consuming a substance at that point would be so small. I mean, we're really talking about like what what did the person do? In my area, the person probably has injected something. Right. So it's not in their mouth. Okay. If they snorted something, it's still probably not in their mouth. If they took a pill, well, it's not in their mouth. No. So, it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it would be a weird, it'd be a very rare kind of one in a million scenario that you'd have to concoct to be exposed to the substance orally. The bigger fear for people is, what if they've got like an open wound? What if you see a blister, or a cut, or a sore or something like that? What if they cough or vomit when they come to, which can happen? Mm-hmm. Things like that. I think those are the bigger concerns, which is why I really encourage, because at the end of the day, you know, I... I took an oath. My job is to take care of people. Right. And I, I am willing at times to put my own personal safety at risk to do so. But that's right. the job I took. Right. Not everybody necessarily has to sign up for that. No. So I think that giving Narcan, being willing to administer rescue breaths, you need a mask. They make these little masks. I have one on my keychain. Justin, you have one. Yeah. I hand them out every time I hand out a box of Narcan now. That is, uh, it's it's a little teeny square and you open it up and it's got a plastic flat mask that you can simply lay over the person's mouth. It's got a hole, of course, for you to breathe through. And now you've protected yourself from any exchange of, you know, any sorts of fluids or whatever. Um, I would really encourage you, they're, they're available online. Any place that gives out Narcan generally has these as well. Uh, usually places like the Red Cross would have these available. Any sort of like CPR life-saving courses that are taught in your community, mm-hmm. they would be able to give you these little teeny masks. They're big ones, like they're big giant 
like plastic cases you can clip on your belt loop that have like a big plastic mask you can use instead. Mm-hmm. I usually don't carry that around. I have one in my office. You can get them in bulk, right? Like mm-hmm. I think we got a big bag of like a hundred of them off, off Amazon. Yes. And if you have any local harm reduction program, they should have them for free. Like I hand them out for free to everybody. I would encourage you that if you're somebody who has been Narcan trained, if you're trained in CPR, rescue breathing, any of these sorts of things, Investing in one of these masks, which are relatively cheap, is a good thing to have on you. So then you can do rescue breathing and feel safe, you know, and confident while you're doing it. I have a weird medical question for you. Say you had an undiagnosed medical condition during my life and then I donated my body upon death. If it was dissected by medical students who discovered the condition, would they notify my family? On a related note, are the cadavers even kept track of in that way? If there were something noteworthy, would they even know who the person was or would they be able to connect with the family? Thanks so much. That's from Chelsea. Um, I was thinking about this. So I think that the chances that just because of the nature of a the sort of anatomical dissection we do post-mortem in medical school, the the likelihood that we would discover any sort of undiagnosed chronic disorder is pretty low at mm-hmm. that point. Um, obviously, we can see very major things mm-hmm. on gross dissection, but you got to remember it's just a gross dissection. By gross, I mean, I don't mean gross. <laughs> you understand I'm not saying gross like you. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm just looking at the organs themselves, like the visible to the eye objects. Yeah. So, I I mean, I, I saw things like um, a, a bleed in a brain. You can look inside an artery perhaps to see some disease, although like other processes have taken place that may make that harder to see, like Mm -hmm. to preserve the bodies. You can see a big cancer growth. I saw that in many patients. But those are things that would have been diagnosed, right? Right. We're not doing pathology. We're not looking at anything under a microscope. And certainly any of the things that have not so much to do with the structure of the human body, but the function of the human body, we can't see that now. Right. So the the likelihood that we would ever uncover anything like that, I it, again, I think this would be an incredibly rare. I guess this person would probably be asking in case of like like it's something genetic that the family would need to know about, right? Is that would that be the purpose? I guess if you were, to yeah, find but I don't know how we would. I I can't think of a good example of something that would be genetic and would be would be visible on gross inspection and also would have flown under the radar their entire life. Our, our, ugh, you a, know what I'm saying? Like a, that combination would be hard to. This is a grisly question, but are the remains returned to families after the science is done with them? So after every medical school, I think, does their own thing. But at most medical schools, there is a ceremony, a memorial ceremony at the end that the medical students are welcome to attend. The families and, and friends and loved ones of the people who donated their bodies are all welcome to attend where the names and pictures and the people, their remains are usually cremated they can be buried there can be other ways sure. you know i mean there there are other things that can happen but um the there is a ceremony after the course is over mm-hmm. where the remains are interred in some way and the person's life and gift to the medical school is celebrated um so they are not anonymous you can i mean if they're in this rare scenario and i couldn't even concoct something that would that would come up with this so i don't think this would happen but let's say it did you would be, they're not de-identified. There would be a way to communicate that information with the family. I know that getting the best possible medical care requires honesty with your doctors and other caregivers. However, how much can doctors tell from raw lab data and how hard are they supposed to lean on a patient they might suspect of obfuscating the truth 
about their home routines, factors leading up to an incident, etc. I'm just starting to take an active role in my parents' health care, and I'm seeing what I've long suspected. They don't tell their doctors the whole truth when they think it makes them look bad. I understand doctors can only do so much with an incomplete picture, but there are things that have gone unaddressed and undiagnosed that I, as a non-medically educated person, would have expected could be apparent from labs, hospitalization records, etc. Thank you for your insight and everything you do to make the show. That's from Kim in Florida. Um, so most of the time, this is in, this is me speaking from my experience. I, I often know if a patient, like I can look at lab data sometimes and know that maybe I'm not getting the whole story. From everybody the lies. That's what you're saying. No, I, I'm not saying everybody lies. I don't, I'm not a house person. I do think that, I mean, and I, I mean, I, I am a patient too. It's hard to tell your doctor the whole truth if, if you want to make them proud. If that is your goal, which some patients want their doctor to feel proud of them, not all, but some do, it, sometimes it's hard to say like, yeah, I just totally didn't take my medicine for a week. I just forgot. Or I know you told me to be careful about sugar because of my diabetes. But I didn't. But I didn't. <laughs> I, 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 I ate a bunch of sugar every day. And Sorry. I'm, oops. Um it can be really hard to admit those things, those lifestyle things, because you feel like, and, and especially like the culture we have equates so much of that with like some sort of moral, you know, value. Mm-hmm. Like if you're good, and even the words we use, good. If you if you if you follow doctors' instructions in terms of like eating or physical activity, then somehow you're a better person than someone who doesn't, right? That's not true, but I think a, a lot of our society kind of equates those things. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult, to be honest, with your physician. We know that. We know that. I am never—I I always urge my residents not to play a game of gotcha with patients. I mean, like, how do you feel cared very for? very satisfying, though, if the doctor is like, actually, I got you. <laughs> well, what's your goal, though? If you're, if you're a doctor and your goal is to catch feel your superior. patient— Feel uh, superior. Okay, well, then you shouldn't go into medicine. <laughs> I'm sorry, Okay. But if you want to help somebody get better, then you need to foster a relationship that encourages them to be honest with you. And it's going to take somebody a while. So you don't call them out. You say, like, we need to work harder on this. Maybe here's some other approaches we could take. Maybe see here's some things we could do. But it really has to be something where the patient is ready to work with you on those things and wants that help. Not everybody wants help for everything. Uh, and you can't, you know, my job is not to force you into some perfect paradigm of health that I decided you need. My job is to work within the frame you'll give me. I I have the opposite problem. I tell my doctor absolutely everything, no matter how small, and then I just stare at them like they've assembled all these details in some sort of mind palace, and and the incredible rare condition that I possess will come to light. There are That happens more than you'd think. I, I would always say, though, this is why if you have a family member like that who's not very forthcoming and you know it, going and be like corroborating evidence is really useful. Um, it depends on like different family dynamics. I will say just, and again, this is me speaking from the part of the world where I live and practice. Sometimes if I had, especially like an older male patient who was telling me everything was just groovy mm-hmm. and was not saying anything else and the labs or it, whatever was suggesting otherwise, I would encourage him to bring his wife. Um, For this culture where I live, that dynamic was very helpful because usually the wife would tell me everything. And then I got all the details and I could actually help the patient a lot more. 
again, I know that sounds very stereotypical and heteronormative, but that is the culture in which Justin and I live and where I practice medicine. And I found that that dynamic existed a lot. Uh, Sid, what is vaginal calculus? I keep seeing references to it, but nobody explains what it is. Cheers, Tom. This is a rare one, Tom. What do you mean? The uh, condition, this condition, vaginal calculus. Oh, it's condition. Uh, okay, got it. Did you think vaginal calculus like math? Yeah, I guess I was thinking like the kind of math you do to figure out something. Your vagina? With the vagina, some measurements or some T square. I don't know. Oh, the T square of the vagina? I just vi- vaginal calculus. I don't know. No, it sounds like a, an. Oh, an <laughs> Sounds like a, what is the pie of the vagina? Like a, sounds like a nerdy guy's way of describing hitting on women. Okay, that was I can't with that. No, they're talking about calculus as in stone, as yeah. in like a stone in the vagina. Wow. Okay, that's actually more more uh, even uh, more you off have, radar than I was expecting. You can have a. I mean, like what we're more familiar with is a is a calculus in your kidney. Or your urethra, or your ureter, or your bladder. Okay. Vagina rocks. Yes. Um, So this is a really rare thing. Uh, Most people listening probably have never had it. You may not even know somebody. I have never seen a case of it personally. Um, But what, what what happens is a urine collects and pools inside the vagina. And then because it's just sitting there... Different substances like calcium and such that are excreted in your your urine can start to form crystals and stones, and you can develop a stone in your vagina, just like mm-hmm. you can in these other organs we already mentioned, right? Same process, just different organ that they are existing in. Um, the reason this tends to happen is because you have some sort of communication between your urinary system and the vagina, and that can result from just at birth. Sometimes there are you know, connections made between the two systems that don't typically form. Um, Or it could be secondary to some sort of surgery or trauma that then, you know, there was damage to that area. And then as everything healed, a a fistula, a a channel of communication between two organ systems developed. And then urine gets into the vagina, pools, stone forms. So that is what they are. They're incredibly rare. Uh, they're important to diagnose and treat because they can cause infection and obstruction and pain. I, I and, think we all kind of got why yeah. it would be important to treat vaginal rocks. I think we get it. But it is not a new form of math. Uh, does okay. This one's tough. Are, are you ready? This for is this our last one? one. I hate to I hate to close on this sort of like negative tone, but I'm just gonna go ahead and read it, and okay. you gotta promise to stay calm. Okay, I will do my best. Does soup move through your digestive system faster than good foods? If so, what's the point? Sorry for the hostility. Max, Soup's greatest antagonist. Excuse me, Max Orion, Soup's greatest antagonist. We want to make sure we know who we're putting on blast. I feel, I'm, I just, I, I do not accept the premise of your question that soup and good foods are two separate concepts. Soup is the best food. You don't have to be so passive about this, Sid. You can go for it. No, I'm just saying that... Uh, I our dear listener is wrong. Soup yeah. is not well. Unless what you're saying is soup is not a good food. It's a great food. It is makes sense. The best food that you can eat. Yeah, I mean, look at me. I love breakfast soup. Soup. <laughs> that's cereal. That's what I call cereal. Soup doesn't move necessarily. So, uh, we talk a lot about this in our um, in the in the gut hole bromance. Uh, 
We know that different foods are digested at different rates. It usually has to do with like the makeup of the food, like protein, carbohydrate. Does it have a lot of like soluble or insoluble fiber? Like different foods take different amounts of time to be broken down and move through your digestive tract. So soup doesn't necessarily move through faster mm-hmm. than any other food. It would depend on what's in the soup. Um, <laughs> certainly like if you're on an all liquid diet, you know, that and like that's going to move through. You're going to go to the bathroom more frequently, mm-hmm. right? If everything you're taking in is a liquid. So if that's what you're saying, like soup has more liquid content than solid food. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if that was a liquid soup that was just like loaded with steak, mm-hmm. that's going to take a while. Yeah. And soup is delicious. And many foods do go through the body faster than that. I talk about... I was talking with Slice about it, and I have proof of this, actually, because they were coming down this way, and uh, they had Taco Bell, and then a half hour later, they had to stop. So one of their children, I won't put them on blast, had to stop and use the bathroom. So there is your conclusive proof. That's Taco a, Bell just but that's a gastric call, No, that's a gastrocolic reflex. That's not the same food you just ate coming back out. It's Taco Bell saying, everyone out, clear a path for me. I'm going to be blazing through here in a few. Everybody out. The point of soup. <laughs> the, the, the Sydney McElroy story. <laughs> the point the point of soup is that it makes you feel safe and warm and loved and happy and full. That is the point of soup. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed yourself. You have one more weekend to come see the SpongeBob musical that Sydney and I directed this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Playing to West Virginia, Ritter Park Amphitheater. You got the Finding Nemo Junior pre-show at 7. You got SpongeBob at 8.30. Everybody, people have been coming. Actually, it seems wild for me to say this on the podcast. We've met two charming groups of folks that have come just because they heard it, about it on the podcast. It is an outdoor theater, and they do not provide you with chairs at this venue. Yes, so bring chairs. Please bring a lawn chair or a blanket. Yeah. Feel free to bring a blanket, bring a picnic meal. There is food oh. and drink there, but you can also just bring Great. your own. Southside Sliders is there doing Crabby Patties. Abby Shea Bakes got some uh, macarons. You got Scraggle Pop there. Little Creamer, best best uh, cones in the biz. I mean, this is a this is an event. Get on out there. SpongeBobWV.com is the website to go get tickets, or you can buy tickets at the door. Just just make a weekend out of it. Come on down to Huntington. We'll be there. If you see Sid and I there, and you come in, make sure to say hi. We'll be around. We'll be pacing anxiously. Mm-hmm. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And uh, oh. This it's almost uh, your last chance to buy the Sawbones 10 year anniversary challenge coin at McElroyMerch.com. Um, so go buy one of those. Those are just through June. So make sure you go get one if you want one. That's going to do it for us. Until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.